Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. I'm glad you're tuning in and listening to these podcasts. Hopefully you're entertained in some way and maybe learn something. I love hearing feedback from any and all episodes, so I encourage you to leave comments on Facebook or Instagram, and better yet, please write a review for me on iTunes on the Everyday Artist page. The guest for this episode needs no introduction, but I think you know me well enough by now that you can bet I'm going to do a short introduction anyway. A few years ago, there was an important large format book printed, and that's back when printing was very different than it is at this point in time. This book was about the history of illustration. This book had two images on the cover. One image was done by Norman Rockwell. The other image was done by today's guest, Mark English. So hopefully that sets the stage as to the importance for the contributions that Mark has made over 55 years of painting. I've been lucky enough to have known Mark for 36 years. It seems impossible, but that's the fact. I watched as he transitioned from being one of the industry leaders for decades in illustration into a very successful painter exhibiting works all across the U.S. and other countries. He went from being a small boy in a small rural town picking cotton for a dollar a day to being one of the illustrators setting trends on the international stage of design and picture making. And I can't emphasize how amazing that is to me. And we talk about that and try to make some points during our conversation as exactly why that happened, how it happened. We have a conversation that ranges from doing backbreaking work in the scorching sun of Texas to being part of an international workshop in Paris with the world's greatest illustration talents. This is quite a winding conversation with plenty of laughs, and near the end, Mark makes a few confessions that will give most every creative person hope and a new vision. He is kind and soft-spoken, with the grace and charm of a Texas gentleman. I feel like we hardly scratch the surface of what needs to be said and discussed, and because of that fact, this is slated to be one of many podcasts with Mark, as it is impossible to encapsulate 80-some years of experience into a single interview. I present to you my longtime friend that always buys me lunch, Mark English. Let's get into it. Mark, you grew up in rural Texas, Hubbard, Texas, in the mid-30s. What do you remember about those days? What do you remember about growing up in Texas? Well, uh don't remember too much about the 30s, <laughs> but uh, 
I was born in 33, so I guess I do remember the late 30s a bit. Um, my first really strong memory was World War II and how upset everybody was. And for a kid that's seven years old, it was all frightening and disturbing. As I think it was to even adults, but uh, it was to me because I didn't quite understand what was going on. Anyway, uh, I grew up in a farm town, about 1,200 people in central Texas. And uh, I had to, uh, my dad <laughs> sent me to the cotton fields when I was probably seven or eight years old. Told me how much cotton I had to pick, which was impossible. And uh, I spent a few years doing that. Tough work for anybody, especially a little kid, get up, start picking cotton at daylight and quit at dark. And uh, But there were other kids out there also, right? I mean, that's just, that was normal at the time. Yeah, it was. There were there was a few uh well, most of, mostly black kids and uh, and black adults. I mean, that's, a lot of them, that was their source of income for the year, picking cotton. And uh, So what was your dad doing at this time? Oh, my dad owned a grocery store, but he grew up as a, a family. His family was a tenant farmer, and he that's the way they made their living was picking cotton. So... I think that sending me out there was just revenge or something <laughs> that that he felt. He, but he had he had five, well, there was five boys, and uh, we all d- did that except the youngest for some reason. <laughs> never could figure out why he didn't have to go. And your sisters never did that. No. Yeah, I had one sister, and she didn't do that. But one Saturday, my dad owned a grocery store, and, uh, and it's, like I say, small town. And I worked for him on Saturdays, hauling groceries out to cars and delivering groceries once I got to be old enough to drive, which was about 13 at the time. <laughs> and uh, we, I delivered groceries on an old World War II Jeep and uh, which was excellent for the muddy roads which we had. Uh, an awful lot of the, this is the country, and a lot of the uh, roads weren't paved yet. Anyway, every little town in that I was aware of in the area, central Texas, had uh, homecomings and rodeos at the same time. I don't think anybody was too interested in what happened in the homecoming, and I can't remember what that was, but uh, the rodeos were a big attraction. And one Saturday, a sign painter comes to town, and he paints bucking broncs and bulls and what have you on the glass uh, fronts of the windows uh, in the different buildings or whatever, the drugstore or whatever. Like up and down Main Street, this guy came along and painted exciting bucking Broncos to advertise the rodeo. Is that the idea? Yeah. Anyway, I, I saw him do it, and I went back as I started following him around, watching him do it. And I knew I could do that because I, 
I spent a lot of time drawing when I was a kid and I uh, just had to figure out what materials he's using and I watched and asked questions and after that day... How old were you? I was probably 14 or 15 and then after uh, that got me out of the cotton fields because my dad was only interested in me working, doing something and making money and... Uh, all of a sudden, I'm making money because I'm going from town to town. Oh, at, it must have been 15 because at age 15, I got a little Model A Roadster. This is a 1930 model Model A Roadster, which car I was, my favorite car of all time. I loved it. And I traveled around in that and uh, went to the rodeos, painted the signs. And all of a sudden, I'm making $50, $75 a day. I, I couldn't make three or four in the cotton field, so I'm doing great. Anyway, that was my first art job. I was uh, drafted in the Army in Korean, during the Korean War and stationed in Fort Sam Houston, Texas. I met an illustrator, or a would-be illustrator, named Harvey Schmidt, who went on to be a very successful, well-known illustrator. So he was in the army with you. Yeah, at the he time. was in the army. He was a lieutenant, and uh, his buddy was named Robert Bender. No, that's not right. <laughs> Robert Benton was his name, and uh, he went on to be the head art director at Esquire magazine. And after the, yeah, after they moved to New York, and and he used Harvey Schmidt in every issue, and they were quite successful. Very talented couple of guys. They went on to write Superman, the play, and they wrote the music for Superman, and The Fantastics, which was the longest-running play in New York, uh, off-Broadway in New York. And Benton became a movie director. I don't know what happened to Harvey, uh, what he did after that. But anyway... I met them luckily in service, and Schmidt and and Benton both suggested that if I wanted to be an artist, which I decided at that point that I wanted to be, knowing not what an artist did, or I didn't know the difference between designer, art director, illustrator, painter, I was very naive, but they suggested I go to California, go to the art center. So this was... After you left the Army, right. then they said, go west, young man, go to California. Well, they told me while I was in the Army. Okay, all right. And then after I got out, at that point I had a 1950 Ford and uh, a wife and child and $300, and I headed for California. <laughs> and uh, I figured I, I had enough gas money to get there and back if it didn't work. <laughs> And and, and were, gas was probably money was a little different. In those well, days. yeah, it was like twelve cents a gallon for yeah, gas it was or something. Twenty-five, I think. Although your car probably got five gallons to the mile uh, or five yeah. miles to the gallon. Yeah, and, and it worked. I got a scholarship at the art center. Things went very well there. What did you show them? What kind of portfolio, for lack of a better word? Oh, to the art center. Yeah, my drawings and. I'd worked for, oh yeah, I worked for a sign company for a while when I was probably 20, 19 or 20. 
and I had some color sketches. I learned to use gouache, and but they were made for signs, <laughs> uh, pictures of stakes, <laughs> and sort of. In those days, signs, billboards were all painted, mm-hmm. uh, bulletin boards, and uh, so I did that for a little while. But with that and the, my drawings. I'm amazed I got in art center. Absolutely amazed. I look back at how bad I thought I was. How bad I was. <laughs> I, didn't well, know I, I didn't know it for a while. Well, I have some comments about that later, but go ahead. All right. Anyway, I got out of school, hired by an ad agency, a big ad agency. They sent me to Detroit, which is a place I wouldn't have dreamed of going. And... Uh, I did car ads in Detroit as an art director for about a year. And then I decided to be an illustrator. I got mixed up with some illustrators and decided that's what I want to do. That sounds really bad the way you said that. You got mixed up with illustrators. Mixed up? (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like a really nefarious thing. Like, (laughs) well, there were these illustrators on the corner. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I just learned as I went. I, after I started doing car ads, uh, in the well, they I went to work for a studio. And in those days, they had art studios, and uh, which were made up of designers and illustrators, and they worked for the ad agencies. So I did a lot of comprehensives for the ad ad agencies. And then I started doing illustration and uh, for the car ads, which was a big deal. Well, yeah. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you always mentioned to me that there were two parts to these car illustrations. There were the people that did the cars, and then there were the people that did the backgrounds. Exactly. And I, of course, did the background. <laughs> I managed to do one one uh, catalog. I still got copies of it, car catalog, just before I left, where I did the cars too. But I had to practically do them life size to make them accurate. Was this in gouache? Yeah. And then I started. I had the edits. Well, let's let, the, let me let me back up. Let me back up. So there were the the people that did the rendering of the automobiles, and then there were the people that did the backgrounds like you. Why? Why was the work split up that way? Because the cars were so technical and had to be, you know, perfect. You know, they stretched the cars in those days. And I think occasionally they do now. I've, I've seen the, some that I'm sure were stretched. They it just required such technical stuff that there weren't any illustrators that did backgrounds that were really capable of doing that or didn't want to do it. So I, it was just a different skill set, and it and it the the cars were supposed to look a certain way, and the backgrounds were supposed to look a certain way. Yeah, to make uh, the cars look better, I guess. Yeah, uh, that was. You're making a picture, you know, so, you know, you're at the racetrack and you're doing figures in the cars and behind the cars, rarely in front. I managed to get away with one in front of a car. A figure in front of 
the car that they were trying to sell. So they, they probably thought that it was heresy of you putting a figure in front of their magnificent car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, as I'm doing car ads, the uh, studio I worked for was, didn't want me to leave. And I knew I was on the, because I started, oh, I, I made a deal with them that I would stay for another year if they would send a rep to New York and try to get me in the magazines. I'm starting to get work in New York, uh, Red Book Magazine, Post Magazine, and uh, I decided I had to go to New York. That's where the real action was. And that's where my heroes were. Murray Fuchs had been there for four or five years at that point. Uh, I got a late start. I decided to be an illustrator at 30. Bernie, Bernie was in, De- in Detroit working at 21. And so he was way out of me. Because we were the same age, basically. Anyway, well, he just took a different path. It, it, uh, exactly, at a yeah. different time, yeah, because right. you were doing, it's not like you were sitting around. Uh, you were in the Army, then you went to school, then you got hired at Detroit, which I'm sure wasn't an easy thing to do. I'm sure anybody just walking out of the street wasn't going to be hired. So you, you had your, you were, you were building what you were needing to have. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, after I did a few of the, uh, illustrations for the magazines, I uh, decided I wanted to go to New York. And lo and behold, I knew Bernie, because Bernie was back and forth out of Detroit because he still owned a, owned a portion of the studio I worked for. As they gave me a portion of it, of the, uh, I think I got 25% of the value of the studio, to say that's if I stayed, and, but I didn't. My dad thought I was crazy, <laughs> and I probably maybe I was, but no, I wasn't. I so you know, I knew Bernie, and I first trip was to Connecticut to meet to meet up with Bernie and get a find a, a agent. I knew I had to have an agent in New York, and. Uh, Everybody had one in those days. And so Bernie said, talk to Tom Holloway, who represented him, and and Austin Briggs. Lo and behold, I just thought he was going to give me advice, but he took me on as one of his artists. Uh, and he only represented us three. Uh, and the three of us became very close friends. We all lived within uh, a close proximity. Were you in Reading? Connecticut at that point? Where were you? What? Where were you living at that point? Were you in Reading? Yeah. Okay. I moved to Reading, Connecticut, which is about an hour or less drive to Manhattan. And in those days, you could drive in Manhattan. So I was driving back and forth occasionally, uh, especially especially early on because I was... Tom was the, Holloway, my agent, was the worst agent in the world, but he happened to be the nicest guy in the world. And none of us had the heart. We talked about firing him, but none of us had the heart to do it. Uh, anyway, uh, 
all of a sudden things were started to work it out really quickly and I started oh I did a, I did the first job I got was for a tree grows in Brooklyn a tree grows in Brooklyn which was a, a, little, a series of uh, uh, articles that or stories that they ran in magazines I think is that no, right a book it was a book okay but three of them I did 10 and three of them uh won awards and the Society of Illustrators show. You did 10 illustrations yeah. and three of them won medals. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And and just or, to kind of... Or put, no, they were, they didn't, I'm sorry, they didn't win medals, but they were accepted in the show. Okay. And everybody went to the show, art directors, illustrators, and uh, that really was my catapult into the magazine business. And I started getting very busy. And a little bit of perspective, time-wise, this was mid-60s, early 60s? This was, uh, let's see, I, I moved there in 64 or 65, so okay. mid-60s. So, so you were living, you were actually participating in what we now know as the Mad Men series. Yeah, you know, absolutely. For, I mean, but, you talked to Don Draper on the phone and all of his cohorts basically... To get all these jobs. Yeah. Uh, especially when I worked for the ad agency. I worked after school for a year. I mean, that was the madman era. And I remember I had, I was so, so much a country boy when, when I went to Detroit. It's funny that I observed everybody, how they dressed, because I didn't know how to dress. My brother owned a clothing store in Corpus Christi, which is, you know, a really warm climate. And he, but he ordered me an overcoat, said I needed an overcoat. And he ordered me this gray speckled, ugliest overcoat in the world. And I got, when I got to Detroit with my observing, I noticed nobody wore overcoats, they all wore raincoats, you know. Ah, so you were learning lined at the time. raincoats, and uh, and my suit. I maybe just had one suit. I think I did just one suit, but it was a summer suit that my brother sold me in Corpus Christi, and not being able to wear my overcoat. And I was catching a bus. I had to go to the bus stop, in Detroit, stand out there in my summer suit. And freeze my ass. I mean, <laughs> I did it every morning, <laughs> but I wasn't going to put that overcoat on again. Wow. And uh, anyway, uh, Bob Dunning was the head art director at End of Year, and he became a photographer after he left there. Really nice guy. But I was reading an interview with him in Graphiste magazine, and he said, I think what I'll be remembered for is I'm the guy that kicked the horse head off of Mark English. (laughs) (laughs) And he did. I mean, he did. He taught me so much just, just by, you know. Well, I remember you telling me years ago, or maybe you were speaking at the Academy, which we'll talk about later, that you spent, and the people in your business used to spend time observing what a well-dressed man really looks like or a well-dressed woman and how what kind of taste 
that you needed to develop if you were going to represent yourself and your work to these magazines because that's what they expected. Yes, absolutely. And I did. I, I, I think I knew a lot about, I think I knew more about women's fashion because I had to study that more. And, uh, and men's fashion, men's fashion was, maybe I knew the same, but I, I, it was so easy for me to understand and women's fashion was a little more complex. But uh, for somebody from Hubbard, Texas, I'm talking about. But it was taste in everything that you acquired, in furniture and, you know, whatever it may be, that you were, you were trying to gain this taste. You had to know what was good and what was bad. And I think I did. And I, you know, maybe you can't tell by looking at me now, but I still, <laughs> I, still I still have that, I think. <laughs> oh, every time you moved to a new house or studio, you always took the time and the effort to really put your stamp on it. I, I always noticed that. And for those of you that didn't hear the introduction, Mark and I have known each other 36 years, I think. Yeah. Right. And and you've gone through a few homes, a few studios, and they all look like yours. Like you could put a tent in the backyard, and you know, two hours later, it's uh, well, that's Mark's tent over there. <laughs> that looks like his. Yeah. So, but you needed to get that sensibility, and it's interesting that uh, part of what I was trying to do with the early part of this interview was establish that you were a rural kid in Texas, and a very short time later, you were one of the leading, if not the leader, of the illustration world. In and, New York. and that's a huge, in New York City, I that's know. a huge... It's a huge a, jump. It is. Yeah. So, so anybody can do it. It's easy. I certainly, I certainly had a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're talking about fashion I I punished side story here I've done several album covers for John Denver and uh, met John in New York on the first album cover and listened to his music uh, in a studio there in New York but the last one I did I think I did three and the last one I did I flew to Aspen uh, oh I, I did the cover oh he went oh the other thing was the one of the interesting things was when I was doing the um, album cover before I started John used to call me and sing to me on the phone because he wanted me to know the music so every time he'd get a song finished he would you know call me and sing to me on the phone which was a kick I was like a, that was that was fun but I I Went to Aspen to take a photograph of the people because I did a cover that didn't include his photograph. And the CBS, as it was uh, working through, uh, wanted a portrait of him. So anyway, I, I flew up there to take the picture. And as I walked in, and I, in the old days, <laughs> I dressed even differently. I was wearing cowboy boots, jeans, uh, and a white pleated shirt. And when I walked in, he said, 
he kind of smiled. He said, I've never seen anybody dressed like that before. <laughs> and I said, well, what are you saying? And he said, he said, it's just, I never seen him, but he called it an evening shirt. It wasn't, but it, it had pleats on it like an evening shirt. And, uh, the funny part was the next time I saw him was on the Calypso on the Jacques Cousteau's 70th birthday. And we took the Calypso to a area, I'm trying to remember somebody's name, Elsa's name, who was throwing the party for his birthday. Anyway, I run into John, he, he probably didn't know I was gonna be on the boat. We boarded the Calypso and he's sitting there talking to some people. I walked up, he's dressed exactly like I was when I walked <laughs> in. <laughs> and we both laughed about that. But anyway, that that's a side story. We were in New York and I was uh, doing a lot of magazine covers, won a lot of awards, which our directors were very interested in winning awards. And I was like, very interested. I remember towards the end of my time in New York, before I moved to Kansas City, that the art director for Ladies Home Journal called me and asked me if I'd had a lunch I did, and uh, met him in New York, and we were having lunch, and he said, Mark, I gotta talk to you about something, we have a problem, and I said, yeah, what's that? He said, the editor thinks your people are getting uglier, <laughs> the people that you're drawing and illustrating for these stories he he was oh, suggesting yeah. right. that the uh, that the people that you were illustrating aren't as attractive and they're not that beautiful right. uh, model looking person exactly. anymore okay i said yeah but i think they're getting more interesting looking than they were before <laughs> anyway I, and that's the reason i brought that up i said well you know, what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to quit using me or what? You know, what are you telling me? He said, I can't quit using you. He said, you're winning all the medals for me, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. But uh, he did continue to use me, and they, they let me by with the ugly people. But uh, no, they weren't ugly, but they were different, you know. Well, I maybe you helped your case by calling them interesting looking. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's something that they had overlooked, but yeah. you kept doing them. Kept doing them. Well, and I show a lot of that era illustration from, especially from the women's magazines when I do lectures or I teach my classes, because number one, they're so beautifully drawn. The drawing beneath the the paint whether it's acrylic or gouache i mean the drawing is absolutely perfect and interesting and i always ask my students okay here's a man and a woman in this illustration who's the story about oh it's about her then i go to the next one who's the story about oh it's about the woman because all of those stories were about the women because they were in women's magazines exactly and the guys were always in the background or behind the woman or, you know, uh, basically a profile or something. So it's really interesting psychologically what you and your peers were doing to direct the, the reader into understanding what 
the article was about, what the story was about, and it, right. it was really fun to look at and the, the beautiful patterns that... that well, you know, I, I've said more than once, uh, I didn't uh, like very many of the stories I illustrated. I mean, they weren't terrific uh, literature, but they, my job was to make people read them. And, uh, you know, it's like I was some kind of con man that said, you know, this is an interesting story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an interesting picture on it and, and trap you into reading it, bad as it may be. But that really was. I mean, I, I did feel that way a lot. You know, when I, when I read this story, that yeah, what am I going to do? Well, why do you think they had you do the illustrations in the first place? They, <laughs> they probably had true. a feeling. It's just like, you know, this isn't yeah, right. top-notch literature, like you said, so let's, let's give them a pretty picture and uh, something interesting well, to look at. Well, that was especially true before I went to, to New York, uh, before me and Bernie and, and a few other guys. You had guys like Joe Buller. I'm not saying anything bad about Joe Buller or Kobe Whitmore, who did beautiful women. And that was exactly, I mean, they illustrated the stories as they wanted to be seen. And they didn't, you know, and Bernie and I would, you know, we would uh, depart from that considerably. You know, they weren't weren't just beautiful women. That's And that's what those guys did, and they were good at it, but it got more interesting. Oh. A lot of Bernie's people, men and women, had these very beautiful but pretty esoteric complexions. He was painting these green and blue and purple complexions, but it worked anyway. Uh, I mean, it was, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he pulled it off uh, because, yes, that was a step away from the Kobe Whitmores and the Joe Bowlers because this was 20 years later. So things were changing. Exactly. Mark, tell us some of the illustrators that you really admired that were either before you or your contemporaries. Well, uh, Bernie first. Bernie uh, Fuchs you're talking Bernie about. Bernie Fuchs. Uh, I remember when I was going to, thinking about moving to Connecticut and uh, I went to see Bernie and really, you know, spent some time with him. And he took me to the studio and showed me about a hundred pieces of his work. And he knocked the wind out of me. I get went back home, back to Detroit, thinking maybe I shouldn't go to New York after all. You know, the competition is pretty damn good and too good for me. And at that time, I really didn't know how to paint. I I, did, I, I drew pretty well and put in flat color, which is what I've come back to <laughs> after all these years to a certain extent. But I didn't uh, really know how to paint. And it was a period of about four or five months after I moved to Connecticut that I didn't get a job. And... Uh, the, the Little Women and the Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And Start. you were there with a wife, two girls, and a boy. Yeah. Trying to figure out if you were going to make a living at this or not. That's right. Being, so without, being without a job for four or five months really was uh, 
well, it made me very nervous. And But it turned out to be a blessing after all. I, I studied Bernard and Villard, two painters that I liked a lot. And during that period of time, I think I learned how to paint. And I, I couldn't have done... So did you go to museums and study? How did you I learn to, to paint? I, I went to museums, but mostly I was looking at books, and uh, which is not the same as going to the museum. But I, I saw a lot of work. I even saw a, a, a Villard show in New York, which was for sale at a gallery. I should have bought something. I, I, I could have bought, really. I could have bought a Villard for five thousand dollars in those days, and early sixties. Of course, I didn't have five thousand dollars. Hardly, hardly. <laughs> well, you picked a couple of wonderful, wonderful painters, but that doesn't really seem like good people to study to be an illustrator. How did you land on those painters? thinking like, well, yeah, this is going to be the next hot thing in illustration. What were you looking at in their work that you thought was going to be viable? Well, I just loved their work. And uh, I was trying to figure out technically how they were doing what they were doing. And I loved the design work they were doing, and mostly posters and, and so forth. But... Uh, so you've always really been almost a designer first, and a absolutely. I, you know, I, I commented a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, and uh, when uh, George uh, was given his George Pratt, George Pratt. I'm sorry, when George Pratt was after he'd given his presentation. I made the statement, uh, I don't know, somehow a question came back to me. I said, well, George is a painter. I said, I'm a dauber. I said, I don't know how to paint. And uh, George's comment was, I want to be a dauber. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've always thought of myself more as a designer than a painter, really, actually. You know, it's like, Looking at these two paintings here, there's a couple of abstracts that I just finished. It's not much different than the way I think doing a figure. You know, I'm interested in shape and color, composition, and uh, it it applies to all of them, and that's where my focus is. That's the strength of any image. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, at the same time, I'm trying to be unique, you know, be different. When I decided to be a painter, I thought, I'm not going to be a traditional painter. I knew that. Uh, I remember seeing Kobe Whitmore in uh, South Carolina and uh, Hilton Head and spent the evening with him and all he talked about was brush strokes. <laughs> I really, he kept showing me, you know, pictures from magazines or I'm from books of painters uh, that he admired, and and he talked about brush strokes. And I was like, 
I don't give a shit about brush strokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hopefully those brush strokes were inside of great shapes and great compositions. Yeah. Uh, color, color on color a lot is part of it. Uh, but generally the color composition and the, the, um, the color and the composition are the two things that, that I'm really interested in. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't think that when I'm doing an abstraction, I'm thinking much different than when I'm doing a figure. I mean, I'm doing a figure, so that's important, how the, the figure comes off, but most of my time is spent on the composition, the color, and pattern in many cases, most cases, I like pattern, as as did Bullard and Viart. That was part of their influence. When I think back to A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and the Little Women images that you did very early on, those were like the first jobs that you got as an illustrator. Most of those figures had fairly flat flesh areas, hands, face, but the dresses, the couch, the pillows, it was this beautiful pattern contained inside of shape defined by values. And you're still doing that. I mean, we're sitting here in your studio and I'm surrounded by, you know, many, many paintings that are getting ready to go out the door to all the different galleries that you have. Um, but you've always built on the strength. I don't have enough galleries because all these paintings wouldn't be sitting in my (laughs) studio. (laughs) Well, I know you have several and you always have had several. Yeah. But anyway, we were talking about, uh, my favorite illustrators, illustrators that whose work I liked a lot. And, uh, and so, and they're very different. Uh, Bernie was my first influence. Uh, and he was the hottest thing in New York for several years. While I was in Detroit, I mean, that's all illustrators did is run out to buy the latest magazine to see what Bernie Fuchs did this month. And uh, so anyway, he was a major influence. Robert Weaver was a, I think he was a terrific illustrator. Another name that has come up on this podcast many times. Right, yeah. And then on in a different, Alan Cober. And uh, Bart Forbes was one of them too. But I'm thinking of... Jack Unruh. Jack Unruh. Jack Unruh, yes. I loved his work. And it got better and better as he went along. And those those guys were best friends, Bart Forbes and Jack Unruh, two peas yeah, in a sure. pod. And they were at the very first Illustration Academy in 1995 that you and your son started. 95? On... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that later. But yes. Uh, and then uh, I watched, you know, when I moved to, when I moved to Connecticut, I lived next to Fred Ottenis. We were just around the corner from each other. And he was a Western 
paperback cover illustrator. That's primarily what he did. Along the lines of Tom Lovell, that kind of thing. Yeah. James yeah, Obama. Right. Yeah. I yeah. remember his early work. Yeah. And then I watched this metamorphosis take place with Fred that I thought was phenomenal. From where he went, where he came from, to where he went was just incredible. With that amazing printmaking, photography process, collage. I, didn't, know, I never understood how he worked. Nobody did. It was too complicated it. for me. But he, he did his best work as a painter after he quit illustrating. It just got better and better. And he made that metamorphosis that you're talking about. He did that when he was 50 years old. Yeah. He never gave up trying to figure Ex- out exactly what he needed to do. Exactly. So anyway, I was most impressed with Fred. And um, and you guys were best friends for 40 years. So. Absolutely. We, we had dinner together with our families, and he and I played chess once or twice a week. I think he took your son John to the hospital more than once. Maybe. With stitches. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> anyway, that, that's the name of few. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, Bart Forbes. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out somebody that I really admire. Joe Ciardella, I like a lot. Uh, do you know his work? I'm not sure if I know the name. Look, I, at, look him up. Okay, I probably do. He, but he's I can't, in uh, the same area as uh, Kober and Anra, sort of. He's a, a drawer, pen and ink drawer, with uh, I don't know, with a very naive kind of feel about. It. I remember asking Alan Kober once at dinner. We were in St. Martin doing our workshop, and. I, I said to Ellen, I said, when did you realize your work was naive? And he looked at me, as Ellen could do, and said, what do you mean naive? <laughs> <laughs> Looks fine to him. And I said, you know what I mean. And he said, yeah, Mark. I said, I started off working like this when I was in college. I didn't know any better. He said, I thought my work looked a lot like yours. <laughs> and uh, But he well, certainly got a handle on that being naive. Well, and the, the hard part about that, or the trick to me, would be to make it so well done and so informed that you knew he was doing that on purpose. Sure. As opposed to somebody that doesn't know anything. It looks you know, like it's really bad. Alan Cobra did stuff that looked unique and strange and odd and beautiful, but he did it that way on purpose. And I, I just don't know how he did it. I don't know how he got there. It's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Hanging right behind you. Alan, I just want to say one thing about Alan was, Alan was a great salesman, a great promoter of himself. He sold people his work and People that didn't want it. I mean, he, <laughs> he just pushed it on, and uh, it worked for him. I mean, it got him, you know, places that uh, most of us couldn't have gotten had we been doing Alan Cobra's work. Uh, and, I, and he was up in the Reading area with you guys, wasn't he? 
No, he he lived over in New York State, not far from us, hour away. And uh, you know, I couldn't sell anybody anything. I mean, I, I know it. I couldn't, <laughs> especially myself. I couldn't sell myself. Uh, if my work doesn't sell itself, <laughs> so be it. I mean, I'm not going to do anything about it. I, you know, I wish I did. I think a lot of the guys that were self promoters that have been self promoters uh, uh, could be quite successful doing that. I couldn't, you know. Anyway. Well, the country boy from Texas just wasn't interested in that. The, the, the Texas <laughs> well, guy I'm, just said, I'm, here's my work. Take it or leave it. You know, do you like it I'm, or not? I'm, believe it or not, I'm still shy. <laughs> Two painters that first influenced me, and, is, and I still admire them a lot. Uh, but then I've gone on to admire a lot of other painters. The next guy, which is a long ways away, is uh, Diebenkorn. Richard Diebenkorn was a big influence. Uh, and he underwent a bit of a metamorphosis earlier in his career than being 50, but he yeah. worked, you know, a certain way. And then all of a sudden just boom, it became those yeah. abstractions. And he was part of the Bay area figurative painters and that sort of thing. And then right. I, you know, I'm an admirer of, of Devon Corn's work as well. Yeah. I kind of all over the place with my work. I, I don't have a body of work where it looked like it was all done by the same person. <laughs> well, you have periods. Huh? You have periods like I have Picasso. Periods, right. you know? It's like I change constantly. Uh, Why do you think you do that? To entertain myself. So it, once you figure something out, I, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but when I've seen you do this for the past 40 years, just like as soon as you figure something out, you go, okay, got it. And then I see you moving on. There's a bit of that, yes. And I get bored very easily. And that's the one thing an artist should never do, <laughs> is get bored. Uh, you know, boredom will just ruin you. So I, I'm fighting that. You know, so I've been doing it a long time. Fighting the boredom by trying new things and being curious and moving on. Right. And I know your favorite art store is called the hardware store because I'm looking behind you and I see very few art materials back there. <laughs> That's true. You're right. I mean, I use, I paint mostly, not entirely, but I, I you know, I have oils in her tube, but mostly I use house paint, you know, oil-based oil based house paint and latex house paint. The latex house paint's better than acrylics by all means. Uh, first place, I don't like the shiny quality of acrylics, and it's also kind of transparent, and latex house paint is, is better. And a lot of people say, oh my goodness, well, is that archival? And I'm thinking, well, if it'll stay on your house in <laughs> yeah. the sun for Outside. 10 years, That's right. I, I think maybe it can hang on your wall. Absolutely. I, I agree. I, th I think it, it probably is. Uh, Nothing against art materials. I mean, it's all good. But yeah, sure. But you've just made your choices and your experimentation over the years. So I go to the hardware store to get my paint, and I mix my own colors. I'll buy 
six or eight bright colors, pure colors, and mix them and make my own colors and put them in the ketchup bottles. And when I look for a color, I just reach up in the shelf and grab one that's close. And, and I might mix it with a little bit of house paint or, I mean, uh, oil paint or whatever. Uh, my, my masonite I paint on the hardboard. I buy that at the hardware store over here. So do the guys at the hardware store, men and women that work there, do they know that you're this artist that comes in and makes these incredible paintings and sells them to, or uh, sends them to galleries all around the world? Do they know that? No. (laughs) (laughs) I bet they'd like to know. (laughs) Well, Mark, several times over many years, every once in a while, you would come to me and say, Brent, I don't know what I'm doing. What do you mean by that? Because there's a lot of people that would like to argue about that with you. What do you mean you don't know what you're well, doing? You know, I think it's, I know a lot about art. Uh, I know a lot about materials and technique and all those things. And maybe that's my undoing. I, uh, I'll sit down and, and pick a subject. I, you know, I, I'll paint a house, an old house, which I enjoy painting, you know, a certain romance about them, mystery about them that I like. Uh, and I said, all first thing I do, and I don't think many artists after painting for 50 years will have that problem. Okay, how do I paint this? And make it at its best. How would it look best? And what would be the best approach that I could take technically uh, to make it work? To make it pretty, to make it interesting, to make it captivating? What do you mean to make it work? If I have a vision of, of a house that has a mystery... Um, that I want to have a mystery and about it and how do I best depict the image that I see that I'm seeing in my head and I have so many approaches many possibilities a way I can do it that it makes it uh It, well, it makes my paintings look so different from each other sometimes that I don't have a body of work that looks like me necessarily. Now, people are with me about that and say they can always tell, you know, if it's me or not. But, you know, I can't tell sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were illustrating, did you approach it the same way? Did you get a job and think, okay, now how should I do this? Uh, somewhat, not in the beginning, but as time went on, yeah, it changed. But you know, a lot of other guys did too. I remember Bernie changed a lot. Uh, he went from basically, he went from uh, using gouache, which had the effect of oil paint, to using acrylic, which was very, you know, washy, transparent, and. Uh, 
So there was, you know, he went through change too. But not like me. It's like I changed constantly. <laughs> and, I, you know, I was trying to learn something, you know. It's all, it's all a learning process. And that's where I'm still at, you know. That's what I mean. I don't know what a, when I say I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I want to do next. I wish that my work was more consistent. Do you ever go to the hardware store and wander around hoping you'll find some cool new thing? I have done that. <laughs> I found roofing tar, and which is this right here. And it's, it's designed not to completely dry, but if you mix it with wax, it does. It gets hard. It's, it's like when you mix, when you scrape through it, it becomes like a raw umber and burnt umber mixed together. Yeah, it's a exactly. beautiful warm. Beautiful, yeah. Or washes are kind of the same way. All those landscape sketches are done with, I'm just putting down, I'm just playing, you know. I put down, I got a, a slick board there, white board. It's very slick. And I'll just cover it with that stuff and then start carving it out, you know, with, uh, well, both with my, what do you call those things, scraper. A, a putty knife. He's Mark's turned around and he's grabbing all these tools he's got hanging. And there's putty knives, actual painting knives, putty or um, palette knives, scissors, all kinds of uh, implements of destruction back there. Okay, and I and I use the palette knives and the scrapers, I call them, and start cutting through it and things. You know, make things happen. Well, I think you have a very, what I would call, plastic approach because it's it's like clay. Like you're sculpting with clay because you're adding and subtracting. You're adding paint. You're scraping away paint. You're adding, taking away, adding, taking exactly, away. Exactly, yeah. And that does sound fun. My biggest motivation for painting at this time is I still have fun doing it after all these years. I... I'm never more comfortable when I'm sitting in front of a painting. What's your most, this would be a hard question, what, what's the most fun part of your creative process? Is it starting? Is it the end? Is it the middle? I think it's the end. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'll start a painting. I cannot wait to finish it. Uh, I mean, I enjoy the process of doing it, but I can't wait to finish it to see if it's going to work or not, you know, because <laughs> I'd never know. All right. You've, uh, you're right in front of probably a uh, 30 by 40. Is that a five hour process? Is it a two day process? Well, these, I, I know it's different yeah, every time. Yeah, it's different. These are two days, two and a half days each. Uh, the painting of the figure, even though I was working from a smaller painting, I can't call that a sketch, but it sort of, I used it as a sketch, and uh, it still took me longer. I would say on that four or five days. I'm going to say that's uh, 48 by 60 inches, four by five feet is about right. what that looks like. You're right. And it's got collage. It's on my website. Take a look at it. That's on Mark's website eventually. 
but there's uh, collage elements, there's paint, there's beautiful design, there's, there's shape, color, abstraction. It's everything that Mark talked about previously. It's all, all wrapped up into one beautiful lady here that we're looking thank at. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know a thing or two, I guess. <laughs> now, now that I reevaluate your work in front of me here. <laughs> hey, well, I'm, st- I'm still learning, and that's fun. I, th- I think that's smart, and that is fun. And, uh, and I th- think that gives you a reason to jump out of bed and go to the studio yeah. and see what's going to happen. You know, I, I run into guys you might have heard. I'll go to the casino every once in a while. I mean, no. I, I meet a lot of people there. And uh, they always assume I'm retired. They say, oh, what did you retire from? Before they even ask if I'm retired. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm not retired. I'm still working. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to retire from? You get up in the morning. You paint what you want to paint. You send it to galleries. Galleries send you money you win. That's right. I, I, I don't want to do myself. I retired. Well, I, I know that, um, some of the people that you used to hang out with constantly ask you when you were 65, 70, they said, Mark, when are you going to retire? And then that would be your answer. It's like retire from what? Yeah. Why? I don't have a job. You never had a job that you hated, that you hated to go to. And like a lot of people do, a lot of people just try to get through their job so they can retire. And well, that's as, the opposite as, of you. As a lot of people think, I, I haven't had a job for 30 years. <laughs> it's been longer <laughs> or, no, than that. 50 years. <laughs> yeah, 55 years. I don't know. But it's not really a job. Uh, it's what I do for a living, but it's not a job. Yeah, two totally different things. And it's you live this lifestyle, and we've talked about that artistic lifestyle on this podcast many times and your name comes up a lot and I've quoted you a lot and one of my favorite Mark English quotes is you you used to say often Brent I'd rather look at an interesting drawing than a perfect drawing and I think I see that in your work because this work isn't perfection I meaning I, I look at the house that you painted and it's, it's kooky and it's interesting. And it makes me think about all the stories about the people that lived in there. Yeah. And it is not a perfect little house. It's a really interesting house. And that's, I think that's part of your philosophy is just to make it entertaining for the eye. Yeah, it is. Can we talk a little bit about the first Illustrator's Workshop? Oh, yeah. The first one. Well, the way it came about was uh, the art center where I went to school asked me out uh, just just to make a talk. And uh, while I was there, the president of the school said... And it was in Pasadena at the time. Maybe Pasad- it still yeah, is. Yeah, this was... This but it was Pasadena. in Pasadena. Okay. Said that because originally it was in... In Los Angeles, yeah, in an old girls' school, and they built this beautiful, expensive art school. But they said that the president of the school asked me if I would consider coming out and teaching. And I said, uh, 
I'm a, you know, I can't do that. I'm at the height of my career here. It's right in the middle of it. I said, I can't come. So move. that's late 70s, mid 70s. Yeah, mid 70s or early 70s, somewhere in there. After he asked me that and telling me how much he'd like for me to, to, to do it, I got to thinking about it. I called him up and I said, you know, if you could send your graduate students Connecticut, I said, I can put together the best staff you can imagine. And they said, okay, we'll do it. And I got Bernie Fuchs, Bob Hondel, Fred Otnes, Ellen Kober, Bob Peake, and myself. Uh, maybe leaving somebody out. I don't, I don't know. But anyway... And I'm looking at the picture right behind your head <laughs> of all of those guys. Uh, like uh, you're all. I got them all. Yeah, yeah, you did. You, I was, I was listening. Anyway, uh, so they came out. The students came out, and the way we arranged it, they would spend a half a day, a week, in each artist studio, and uh, which was great. They loved it, and uh, it worked good. And the thing grew and got bigger, and we started uh, having the workshop at a college in uh, Marymount College. It's in New York State, which was close by. And then we were we never made any money at it, but we had a lot of fun, you know, like. Things are going good. We had had accumulated a little money, so let's do it in Paris next year. We did. We did. Let's do it in St. Martin. So we did. Let's do it in Monterey, California. We did, and and we had a we had great fun doing it. And I think, but even in spite of that, I mean, the students obviously. Love going to Paris, going to the workshop or, or whatever. But I don't know. We you had five personalities with big egos <laughs> caused the problem. Eventually, there was only you know two or three of the guys that didn't get along very good and and caused uh, a little problem. I'm, so these I'm, were a week long. They were five or six days. What? The workshop. Oh, no. They were, they were like uh, four weeks. Oh, weeks. oh, wow. And okay. five weeks. Yeah. So you had some big egos in close quarters for a month. Yeah, with a lot, a lot of arguments. <laughs> and uh, we literally got thrown out of a couple of restaurants in Connecticut. <laughs> but I, I, I can't tell you what it was all about, but. Silly looking back on it. Oh, I'm. I'm but it, it had to do with ego, you know. So you lived close to Robert Heindel, and yeah. and your he had two boys. You had two girls and a boy. Yeah. And John and um, Robert's kids were about the same age. I think they were on yeah, each side yeah, of John. And yeah, Bob's Bob's boys, Troy and uh, Toby, Toby and Todd. We're all about in there together. Mark was kind of in the middle there, 
Yeah, I think he and Todd were best friends, and they spent a lot of time together. Yeah, I was going to say, Mark's told me, and again, I have to explain, when you're with Mark English's family, his son, John, is actually named Mark. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm every time I'm, I'm over at Mark's house or whatever, somebody will say, hey, Mark, go get Mark, because Mark's coming over later. I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> so yeah, Mark just referred to his son as Mark, which is his name. Yeah, right. So anyway. So, real, that's his real name. Yeah. And all the family calls him Mark, but everybody else calls him John. Right. And I'll tell you how that happened, which was pretty funny. He was going to KU, and uh, he, his teacher asked, him, asked all the students to do a mailer that they could send out to local businesses and try to drum up work. And, you know, it's just... Uh, a lesson in doing that sort of thing. And he proudly brought, brought his to me and had a painting he did on it, which was very nice. And it said, big letters across it, Mark English. Uh-oh. And I, I looked at it, <laughs> never thought about it until I see it. And I said, you can't be Mark English. <laughs> he said, I am Mark English. I said, but you can't be because I'm Mark <laughs> already. <laughs> And I said, uh, you're going to be somebody else. <laughs> and I said, why don't you go use your middle name? I loved his middle name, which is a family name, his, his mother's family, Little John. I thought that's a great name. But he grew up being called Little Mark, and he wasn't about to be called Little John. <laughs> <laughs> so he, be, he became John. <laughs> and my favorite part of this story, and just to reiterate, because uh, you know you guys don't have a program, so I'm going to lay it out for you. John's name is not John; it's Mark. Guess what? Mark's name is not Mark. He just decided when he was a kid he liked the name Mark better. So John's name is not John. Mark's name is not Mark. Okay, are we clear now? <laughs> well, I tell you. Only thing wrong with the story is it wasn't my invention. My brothers all called me Marky. Okay. Where that came from, I don't know. My real name, I, I don't want the world to know this, but you don't I'll have tell to you. Say it. My real name was is Morris, M O R I S. But my family called me Marky, and I don't know why. But as I introduced myself, like in art school and wherever, as I grew up, when I'd say Marky English, they only picked up Mark English, and that's how I became Mark. Okay. I never knew your real name until I was house-sitting for you when you had the big farm up in Liberty, or Kearney, Missouri, and I was going out to get your mail every day, and I kept getting some guy's <laughs> mail by the name of... Morris English. And I'm like, what? Man, who's that? Man, this mailman's crazy. And then I started thinking, oh, okay. Yeah, he's so. been faking it all these years. <laughs> <laughs> all illustrators have to do odd things sometimes. Like you pose yourself as a dead person, you know, for reference. You photograph yeah, right, yourself. Yeah. Or you have to ask your wife or your girlfriend or your mother, you know, to be a character in a, um, in a book or book cover or, or whatever. So you're sure. always asking people to do 
weird things. Here, right. put these red galoshes on and, you know, stand yeah. out in the leaves in the middle of the night or something. Who knows? Yeah, who right. You have a great story about you were working with one of your illustrator buddies in Reading and you were doing a, uh, a job about the serial killer, Richard Speck. What is that story? Yeah, Fred, Fred's the one that had the job. From, I think it was Post Magazine right after the Richard Speck murders, which he killed, which nowadays we'd uh, yawn if we heard it, but there's so much bad stuff going on. But that was big news then. Everybody was talking about him killing these five nurses or whatever it was, however many there was. And uh, anyway, Fred got the job of illustrating it for Post Magazine, I believe. And uh, so he wanted to paint a scene of the ladies being tied up on the floor and wrapped in uh, masking tape and tied up with rope. So we had our wives model for this and we tied them up and wrapped them up <laughs> in masking tape and gagged them and they're lying in the floor and we're about to take photographs and I forget, I got two painters coming to my house. They were working on my house and when I didn't answer the door, they just walked in because they could see me in there and... <laughs> They were in shock, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> they saw you and Fred walking around with cameras and these two women bound and gagged, tied up on the floor. And even even when we explained what we were doing, it didn't it didn't <laughs> set well with them. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're artists. Come on. Hey. That's a great story though. Uh, I I think when illustrators get together they should probably trade what's the most embarrassing, strange thing that they've had to have somebody do because we've all got those stories. We had a, when I, we used to use Polaroid a lot because it was, you know, immediate. And when I was in Detroit, I remember one of the illustrators, this is before I started illustrating, used to use himself a lot as a model. So he'd set the, Polaroid on a timer, or a tripod, or a timer, and there were all of these shots he left on the floor that weren't any good were him running or, you know, in the middle of getting to the position. And they were very funny. Some of them were very funny. So he was, the timer would go off too soon, yeah, too quickly, right. and he'd be he caught didn't time halfway. It well. <laughs> well, I have a couple of quick questions about after the illustrator's workshop that you did with Bernie and Alan and uh, uh, Bob Peake and Fred. Some time went by, 15 years basically, and you and your son John decided, well, let's do our own version of that. And well, John decided and talked me into it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you were there every day all day so evidently you thought it was a, a okay idea yeah 
Well, and, and eventually it just became his, you know. And we're talking about the Illustration Academy. Right. Because I didn't really introduce which it that we, well. Which we hold here in in uh, Kansas City at a, at a college, a local college, Rock, Rockhurst College. and That's where it is now. That's where it is yeah, now. Yeah, 23 years later, it's and we've back got, in Kansas City. We've gotten students from all over the world, and it's really interesting. You know, the students from Asia and South America and Europe, uh, it's been... It's been kind of nice to get to know those people, but uh, it's been quite successful, uh, and it now it's become an online program. So yes, the Illustration Academy is still going strong. That's their summer—I call it a summer seminar program—and that's been going strong since 1995. And a quick history of that. It was in the Kansas City area for five years. Then we were at Richmond at VCU for three years. And then Ringling College of Art and Design in Sarasota for five years. 2010 brought it back to Kansas City, and it's been here uh, ever since. Two years? Three years? (laughs) Well, no. In 2010, we were doing it in the West Bottoms. Did it down there for four or five years. And it's been at Rockhurst College for the past four or five years, I think. And that's where it will be now and um, this summer. And then the online component that you're talking about is called Visual Arts Passage. And that's John's new iteration of this online program that he has and has, you know, great teachers like uh, uh, Ted Kinsella and uh, George Pratt, John Foster, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There's some... Uh, fantastic some of the, women also that teach there. Some of the same people that teach at the academy. Yes. And uh, it's, it's a great group of guys. And and, and women. There's, yeah. It's right. about, yeah, I mean, at one point, I think one summer, it was about 50% women instructors and uh, 50% men. So It's not to get, nice to get to know these guys. It really is. And it's yeah. an opportunity for... Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I always assumed that all the movie stars knew each other. Well, they never knew each other unless they did a movie together. And I think a lot of these illustrators would not know each other except they come to the academy and they overlap and they get to know each other and they start these friendships that last many, many years. Yeah. Well, when you asked me earlier about one of my favorite illustrators was Brad Allen. And... Brad's now, uh, last, last year he came to our, and taught at our workshop and we got to know him a lot better. I knew him before, but nobody else did. So yeah, there's some great pictures of you guys hanging out on the porch, just talking, just hanging out and a very relaxed atmosphere. I know you're a, you're a good teacher. And probably, I'm assuming that he was a good teacher also. He probably probably gave lectures more than he actually, you know, he, it's not like he actually taught a class. But um, No, no. He, he kind of does what I do. I mean, it's like I go around and look and talk to the students, but when I give the first assignment and do my lecture, but that's it. 
you know. Well, but you you have been this fabulous picture maker for so long that there's virtually nothing that you have not seen yet in as far as a mistake or how to tell somebody to correct something to make it better. And that's, that's the beauty of what I call the old guard of the academy. They have young people that just got into the business. They have people that are at the peak of their career. Right. Then they have people like you that have been doing this for so long that you're just such a great picture maker that you can, you can do and see anything and everything. And well, thank you. I'm not sure that's true. But I think <laughs> well, uh, years ago, probably you were still in the, the big studio in Liberty. So I don't know how long ago that was. Uh, but you called me after 20 you, something years. Yeah. You said, Hey Brent, bring your, your photo equipment. And I've got, hundreds of these old illustrations. I want to catalog them. I want to get really good images and then we'll put them in a book and we'll write information, you know, on a cheat sheet or on the back or whatever, just so you have them organized a little bit. I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. So, I mean, that project took us a month, you know, working a few hours a week on it or whatever it was. And finally, when we were digging through all this stuff, I found these great images that you did at Art Center when you were a student. <laughs> and I looked at those and it blew my mind. They were, so Mark is giving me the skunk eye, right? The Texas skunk eye right now. He's looking at me like, are you serious? No, I'm serious. And I remember uh, there was this one, it was probably for a fake beer commercial because there were these young adults in a grove of trees putting out a picnic. Okay. That the design of that was so wonderful and it was your, your beautiful flat color. It was your shapes. It was, uh, your patterns on the clothing, everything about it was, it just seemed so mature. And I remember at the illustration Academy one time and I'm going to, um, uh, use the name here, Sterling Hunley. I remember having a discussion with a bunch of students and you were there and I said, Mark, you're one of these guys that never really got that much better. <laughs> and that made Sterling, sorry, Sterling, that made him so upset with me that I would say that. And I said, no, <laughs> you told me about yeah, that. I, Mark started at such a high level. You really were at a, such a high level when you were in school and then got out of school. And of course you got better and things matured, but man, you started with the really high bar. So I just, you know, I thought about your statement a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're still friends. I've been wasting my 55 years. <laughs> no, no, you got better. But what I'm saying was, I think of that in terms of you being like Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney wrote all these amazing songs when he was 20, 21, 22 years old. And then he just went on to do bigger and better things like you. But he started at such a high level like you did. So, yeah, I, th I think you're, you're uh, worthy of some praise after painting for 55 years. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from you. Well, you know, you know, I... I appreciate that, but I picked up, oh, I gave it away, 
Oh, one of my kids uh, gave the painting. It was a painting of Mrs. Ms. Santa Claus. And I was looking at it, the detail in it, and there was this fur throw across her chair or something. I studied it. I thought, how in the hell did I do that? I could not, could not figure how I did it. And, and I will look back a lot of my work, early work, and wonder the same thing. So what's next? What are you going to get up and work on tomorrow? Are you going to keep working on these abstracts? I was, think, I was thinking about changing jobs tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Trying something else. Can you cook? Huh? Can you cook? Maybe you could work at like Culver's. I, I, you know, show, you ever see Life Below Zero? Yes. Yeah. Huh? Yes. That's what I want to do. Oh, <laughs> be a mountain man. <laughs> and I look, I watch that show all the time because I think it is really is a neat way to live, you know? There you go. I didn't and, think you liked the cold weather that much. I, yeah, that's the part I don't like. <laughs> could, we, could we do that down in South Texas? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You can be a plains man doing your thing on the plains. Well, I hate the cold weather. I hate it. Well, we've had too much of it here lately. I know. It's I think we're bad, all done with bad it. Bad winter. Well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun, and I'm going to make you promise me right on the air in front of everybody that we're going to do this again. We'll do it again? Yeah. You mean you didn't go too well? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is yeah. terrible, Mark, and I'm not. I, I'm not satisfied. We're going to do it again. Okay. No, I'll right. be. I'll be happy to. It's been fun for me too. All right, Mark. I've enjoyed it. Till next time. Likewise.